Hi. How many of you are out there listening? I'm not asking how many people are listening. I'm asking how many of you are out there. I'm betting that unless you're the product of a human cloning experiment in Korea, there's only one of you listening. So I'd hate to lose you. Please stick around and enjoy this episode of Datages. If you are a member of the Datages friends and family, you are a unique individual. Do you know how I know? Easy, because it's a truism. Unique and individual mean the same thing. And that means that if you are a unique individual, then by transition, I am different from you. I know I'm clearly stating the obvious, but sometimes the obvious is worth stating. I'd like you to imagine how incredibly dull and just downright terrible the world would be if we were all exactly the same. This leads us to the topic of today, diversity. And I've chosen the month of February for this podcast episode because it is Black History Month here in the United States, which is a great celebration of diversity in our culture. But I'm not looking at diversity as a matter of black and white. I'm not even talking about diversity as a matter of race at all. What I want to cover with you today is the notion of true diversity. All of those things that make you, you, and me, me, and everyone, well, everyone. There are so many facets of identity that shape who we are, how we act, how we think, and how we see the world around us. At the end of the day, it is diversity that makes living as a human being worthwhile. Difference in perspective is a fundamental and beautiful element of existence as part of a human society. If our perspectives were all identical, we would cease to have any meaning, value, and identity as individuals. Surrounding yourself with people who are different from you makes you more valuable to all of them. And when you talk about building a company, establishing an organization, developing a program, or enrolling a class of students at a university, diversity may be the most valuable tool in your toolbox. The datage for today's episode is this. Diversity can open many doors, sometimes doors you didn't even know were closed. Now, I know this datage as presented is a bit unconventional. I've even received pushback from my own team here at Datages saying, Chad, any underrepresented minority clearly knows that they encounter closed doors all the time. What you're saying doesn't make any sense. How could they not know the doors are closed? And I agree. When taken in this context, my datage doesn't really work very well. But here's what I'm talking about. Any group that lacks diversity lacks a complete range of perspectives on any topic and on the world as a whole. Such a group or organization is incredibly disadvantaged because it doesn't even know what it doesn't know. In a narrow-minded setting, the right questions cannot even be asked, let alone answered. The group doesn't know what it is missing because it doesn't have the proper perspective to be able to see the holes. Today, I'm going to share some examples from my own life to show how much more complete my life is as a result of diversity. But before I do that, I'm going to delve into some of the bigger picture societal concepts around diversity and talk about the benefits of diversity in education and in business. We'll get into topics including affirmative action, equal opportunity, and diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, as it has become known. Actually, there's a new abbreviation, DEIA, but you'll have to wait a few minutes before I get into that one. 
Lately, these topics have become rather controversial, and I'm going to walk us through some of that controversy so we can all better understand it. Let's begin with perhaps the most timely and most controversial topic of these, affirmative action. In the past year, affirmative action has found its way all the way to the Supreme Court. In June of 2023, in hearing the case Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard, the Supreme Court of the United States, SCOTUS, as everyone likes to say these days, uh, probably because it makes them sound cool, issued a historical ruling along very divided lines, striking down affirmative action in college admissions on a national level. Justice Clarence Thomas, whom I'm sure you all know is black, wrote that he sees the university's admissions policies for what they are, rudderless, race-based preferences. Those policies fly in the face of our colorblind constitution. While I am painfully aware of the social and economic ravages which have befallen my race and all who suffer discrimination, I hold out enduring hope that this country will live up to its principles, that all men are created equal, are equal citizens, and must be treated equally before the law. Interesting perspective there from Justice Thomas. Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the court's first black female justice, also opined on the matter, but in the opposite dissenting opinion, saying this, With let them eat cake obliviousness today, the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat, but deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. So it's clear that we can see a diverse range of perspectives, even on the topic of diversity itself. In this case, we have two African-American justices on, on the Supreme Court rendering not only different opinions, but going on in the proceedings of the court to really attack the positions taken by one another. It's clear that even racial diversity is not a black and white issue. You have to look past the color of the skin of these two justices to understand the stark contrasts in their views upon race. Justice Thomas, who is the former head of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, has always been an opponent of affirmative action, which he views as a blatant racial quota system. Thomas has been known as a staunch conservative throughout his career, and although some felt it was a calculated political move for advancement, if anything, now that he sits permanently on the Supreme Court and is presumably beyond the need for advancement, he's proven himself to be the furthest right of the conservative justices on the court. Justice Jackson, by contrast, is a, recognized as a liberal justice who has focused on the protection of individual civil liberties and has fought against the power of the executive branch of government during her entire career. Let's talk about the Supreme Court case itself now. What is it, it all about? What, what was the outcome and, and what does it mean, particularly in the realm of higher education? Let's start more simply. What is affirmative action? Affirmative action emerged in response to deep-seated systemic discrimination against underrepresented groups such as racial minorities and women. Its primary objective is to address past and present injustices by providing what would be deemed preferential treatment to historically disadvantaged populations. Often this is through quotas or preferences in hiring, college admissions, and, and in contracting as well. Key characteristics of affirmative action are giving preferential treatment to underrepresented groups to ensure that they have access to opportunities that may have been denied to them in the past, and taking remedial measures intended to address historical disparities and promote greater representation of these marginalized groups in specific areas. Typically, affirmative action is mandated by government policies and regulations, and it is subject to legal challenges, just like in this Supreme Court case we're talking about. So how did this particular case, 
Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard arise. Who are these students and, and why are they upset enough to take Harvard all the way to the Supreme Court? Well, the name of the organization is perhaps just a bit misleading. Students for Fair Admissions, or SFFA, is a nonprofit legal advocacy organization founded in 2014 for the purpose, the sole purpose, the explicit purpose of challenging affirmative action admissions policies at schools. The organization is not run by students at all. It's run by an attorney and a conservative activist named Edward Bloom, who spent his entire career fighting against legislation and policies he sees as favoring minorities in a way that he believes is unconstitutional. SFFA is funded by several substantial conservative foundations who support these perspectives and this agenda. Technically, SFFA filed a lawsuit in federal district court against Harvard University all the way back in November of 2014, representing a group of anonymous Asian American plaintiffs rejected from the university. The suit made the claim that Asians were being discriminated against in favor of whites at Harvard. Now, am I the only one who finds it ironic that a set of policies that were set up to ensure that underrepresented minorities were better represented at academic institutions and elsewhere was litigated on the basis of it favoring white people? Following the court ruling, which overrides several past rulings dating back as far as 1978, the court has determined that affirmative action policies that allow any form of racial balancing or consideration of race in the admissions process are unconstitutional. What does this mean for higher education? I heard one admissions professional say, the incoming class of 2024 is going to look a lot different than the incoming class of 2023. I think this is probably true. I imagine in the wake of the decision, two things will happen. One, universities will be on guard because watchdog groups like SFFA are, are going to be on the lookout for any institution that is not strictly complying with the court ruling. And what are they going to do? They'll immediately file a lawsuit against them. And two, it'll take several admission cycles for universities to adapt and to find other ways to ensure diversity among their classes without employing affirmative action measures in a way that violates the ruling of the court. It's worth noting that while the Supreme Court ended affirmative action federally just last year, California, which is considered a progressive state, banned this practice at their public universities all the way back in 1996 through Proposition 209. Prop 209 was a ballot initiative for voters, and, and I'll tell you that I voted in favor of it at the time. The results among the California public schools have been very reassuring since then, as they've actually managed to increase in diversity since that time, 1996. They've learned to employ other approaches that are probably more thoughtful in the end, such as inviting students to write in their admissions essays regarding struggles and challenges that they've faced while growing up and favoring the admission of those applicants who have actually had to overcome such challenges to make it to college. I think this is actually much better than trying to generalize, assume that all applicants from a particular race have faced such challenges and uh, to make decisions based upon caps and quotas and statistical formulas. I think all of the schools across the country will adapt eventually and will find a way to ensure the proper mix of their future incoming classes. Admissions personnel at these schools know what they're doing. A friend of mine who used to work in admissions put it this way, schools are not looking for well-rounded students. They are looking for well-rounded student bodies. As a quick sidebar here, many people I've heard talking about the Supreme Court case have wondered if there could be a spillover into the workplace environment and diversity programs that exist in the professional realm. This doesn't seem to be a real possibility. The notion of affirmative action has 
already been illegal in the workplace for a long time. Based on the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which precludes practices like reserving hiring or promotion slots for people of color and using race as a tiebreaker in such circumstances. So let's focus now on the realm of employment. Let's look deeper into that. If affirmative action is illegal, what programs or initiatives exist to ensure diversity in the workforce? This is where Equal Employment Opportunity, or EEO, comes in. Equal employment opportunity is a fundamental principle in the United States. I mentioned a moment ago the primary legislation for protecting and codifying EEO. It's that same Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which states that everyone should have an equal chance to succeed and shouldn't face discrimination based on factors such as race, age, gender, religion, or, or disability. Key characteristics of equal opportunity include non-discrimination, meaning that individuals shouldn't be treated unfairly or denied opportunities solely because of their demographic characteristics. EEO tries to ensure a level playing field where individuals can compete on merit and qualifications rather than facing systemic barriers. And equal employment opportunity is covered in laws and regulations, and violations of EEO can definitely lead to legal consequences. Friends and family, let's now move on to talk about a related topic to EEO, which is DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. DEI represents a more comprehensive approach to fostering fairness across our society. DEI initiatives are aimed to create an environment where all individuals, regardless of their background, feel valued and respected and have equal access to opportunities. Unlike affirmative action, DEI encompasses a holistic approach to inclusivity. DEI initiatives focus on creating an environment where everyone feels a sense of belonging. DEI is a long-term commitment to promoting diversity and equity in all aspects of life, including workplaces, education, and communities in general. Organizations and institutions often pursue DEI voluntarily, reflecting a proactive commitment to embracing diversity rather than a legal compliance mandate. DEI initiatives include a wide range of strategies, such as education, training, policy changes, and perhaps mentorship programs in some cases to promote inclusivity and, and equity. To get a really good perspective on equal employment opportunity and diversity, equity, and inclusion, I'd like to turn to a real expert and share with you what the Acting Secretary of Labor, Julie Sue, had to say. As the Acting Secretary of Labor, I believe we must all do our part at the department to protect and enrich not only the legal tenets of equal employment opportunity, but also greater principles of equity, civil rights, anti-racism, and equal treatment. Working together in this endeavor, we will cultivate an environment that is diverse, equitable, inclusive, and accessible, DEIA, for all department employees and applicants for employment. By emphasizing DEIA, the department will strive to ensure that all employees have the freedom to compete on a fair and level playing field, free of discrimination, in a manner that maximizes our ability to fulfill the department's mission. And now, as I promised earlier, you know what the A is in DEIA, accessibility. I think this is an excellent addition to the dialogue because it focuses on bringing individuals with disabilities to the forefront and brings in not just hiring practices, but also environmental conditions to ensure that not only that a diverse group of people are hired into a workplace, but also that the workplace is designed in, in a way and operated in a way that they can be safe, comfortable, and productive. If you want to learn more about these topics, I strongly recommend you check out our Datages series that was produced in honor of diversity awareness 
and featured the Alcott family from Australia and their company, The Field. While DEI represents a comprehensive and ongoing commitment to creating an inclusive society where all individuals have equal access to opportunities voluntarily pursued through a variety of strategies, and that sounds like an amazing objective, particularly in an institutional setting, DEI has become a charged and controversial topic. Why? Well, like many well-intentioned societal strategies, it can be taken to an extreme and applied in a way that discriminates against certain individuals rather than empowering others as it's intended. In some settings, the label DEI has been applied to approaches in hiring, promotions, and other key decisions that are really just affirmative action applied at an individual level. When DEI is applied as a measure that exceeds the factors of qualifications and competency, it, it ceases to be a tool for building a strong organization and instead becomes an impediment to doing so. If hiring an employee or admitting a student to a program considers the labels that can be applied to them as a means of checking a box as an underrepresented minority, then the most qualified individuals may be excluded. And if there's a repeated favoritism of minorities taken to an extreme, then the majority may end up being underrepresented within an organization or an institution. In a holistic view, if you back up, a diverse landscape includes the majority. It must. Achieving true diversity requires incorporation of elements of the majority, whether it's ethnic, racial, or, or otherwise. And by definition, the majority represents the larger population, and within the larger population, mathematically speaking, you'll find greater diversity. Let's get out of talking about demographics and populations and programs and public policy. Let me bring these topics home now and share some observations from my own professional life so you can see just how empowering diversity can be. I feel like that's how I can best share with you the real power of diversity in action and from a firsthand perspective. In building my new company in Poland, I've been presented with the greatest opportunity in my life in terms of building a diverse organization. This is one of the things I value about the venture at this stage of my life. Not only am I meeting new people from multiple countries who come from different backgrounds and speak different languages, but I'm also operating at a level and at a scale that opens me up to connecting with a wide range of people who can participate in the venture and bring their experiences and perspectives and talents to the team. Let me give you a few beautiful examples of this diversity in action. I'll share instances that may not fit the conventional societal understanding of diversity, but to me represent very meaningful and valuable types of diversity nonetheless. First, I'll talk about an example of intellectual diversity. And I want to tell you about Martin. Martin is a European real estate executive who's worked at an institutional level for much of his career. He has roots in the UK and speaks English as his native language, having grown up in, in New Zealand. Well, that's not entirely true. Martin actually doesn't speak English as his native language. He speaks Martin. Martin has a financial mind that runs at a million miles an hour, and he sees the business world in a way that is vastly different than my own view. The first few times I spoke with Martin, he would go on and on about complex financial topics, analyzing them in highly nuanced and intricate ways, leaving me completely lost in the dust. I had so little bearing with regard to what he was loquaciously expounding that I was lost and initially dismissed much of what he had to say because it came across to me as just complete gibberish. But had I stopped there, that would have been a tremendous mistake on my part. I've gradually come to decipher what Martin shares and to distill out of it elements of pure genius. I'll, I'll say, though, 
that even when I successfully translate from Martin to English, I still find many of his viewpoints on business matters, strategies, and approaches to be at odds with my own. At odds, but not in conflict. Over a few months of working together, I've gained more and more appreciation for Martin's point of view. And while it is substantially different from my own, taking his views into consideration allows me to expand my vantage point on many business issues to a nearly 360-degree perspective. This is a rare privilege for me as the leader of an organization, and all of the rest of us in the organization have come to embrace and respect what he brings to the table. I've shared all of this with him in private, and I'm excited to acknowledge his contributions and value in public. And Martin's name has even evolved into a verb in our organization. In the Aventine English Dictionary, you'll find this entry, Martinize, to exhaustively analyze a business proposition, cite myriad examples, explain in a manner that confuses the hell out of everyone, and find a way to share priceless nuggets of wisdom in a way no one else could have possibly accomplished. Next, let me talk about a form of diversity that I could label as perhaps emotional, energetic, or personality diversity. Here again, as I've built my organization in Poland over the past year, I've been very fortunate with the senior leadership that I've been able to assemble. In chronological order, there was Sean, who was a lovely and eminently likable Brit. His undaunting optimism rooted in decades of experience in facing and surmounting challenges and pioneering growth economies in Central and Eastern Europe has forged him into an indomitable spirit. More than once, that spirit and optimism has lifted me up in challenging moments when it seemed like things may not work out, and it's carried me and our organization ahead. Then there's Maciek, who is a Stanford classmate and is Polish by birth and heritage. Maciek was educated in America at Stanford and then Harvard GSB, but he remains Polish in his core. What does that mean? Well, he is steady, pragmatic, unexcitable, and he's a skeptic. And like many Poles, he is more likely to question and heavily scrutinize anything that is tied to his home country. And he's never afraid to point out when I'm wrong about something. That's important. Then the latest individual to enter our ecosystem is Chris, whose role is still in an exploratory phase right now. Chris is another Stanford classmate who is an uber-talented, high-energy, mega-personality, gay black man who comes from a strong institutional real estate finance background. Chris brings infectious energy and optimism. I've heard his confidence defined as effusive, and he brings a level of credibility from his institutional real estate roots which means that when he expresses confidence, it comes from a pedigree that commands credibility. So here I am, Chad, sitting at the center of this new organization with personalities and energies around me that range from the undaunted, wide-eyed pioneer to the resident stoic to the energizing dynamo. At first, it sounds like an incongruous emotional roller coaster surging headlong toward chaos but it really isn't. It's evolving into something that, like I said, is new and different for me, but it's pretty amazing. In a conversation just a couple of days ago with one of the closest advisors to the company, I remarked at this diversity of perspectives within my growing team, and he understood how much it meant to me and went on to say something pretty profound. He said the job of a good leader is to absorb and process the diversity of perspectives and pull from those the most important elements that are required to make critical decisions on behalf of the organization. I thought about this for a while after he said it, and I had two thoughts. One, that this is a tall task and a lot of pressure on a leader to weigh properly diverse inputs and perspectives from equally qualified and respected individuals. And two, I just thought, wow, what a privilege. How blessed am I and how lucky is any leader 
that stands at the helm of an organization that is built upon a dynamic and diverse group of individuals willing to share their energy, their perspectives, and their thoughts. This privilege to me far exceeds the burdens that come with leadership. That's the true power and the gift of diversity that empowers an organization that embraces diversity. And on the flip side, imagine a leader running an organization that lacks diversity and that doesn't benefit from such an array of perspectives and viewpoints. If such a leader existed in an echo chamber where he only heard his own voice and no dissenting opinion or differing perspective ever saw the light of day, wow, how limiting would that be? How boring would it be? And how unfulfilling would it be to exist as the leader of such an organization? It seems like the organization itself would fail to serve a purpose. It just becomes a meaningless and hollow shell. And this is what I meant in today's datage. Diversity can open many doors, sometimes doors you didn't even know were closed. It is the closed-minded leader operating in a setting where he is isolated from differing background and viewpoints who doesn't even know what he's missing in the world. He's the one with all of the closed doors. So friends and family, I encourage you to open your doors, open your minds, open your potential. Immerse yourself in an environment filled with diversity and find your life transformed for the better. I promise you'll thank me if you take this one piece of Dadage's advice to heart. And now I leave you all with a dad joke that's all about diversity. A Brit, a Frenchman, and a German walk into a bar. Five minutes later, a priest, a minister, and a rabbi walk into a bar. Five minutes after that, a Jew, a Christian, and a Muslim walk into a bar. And the bartender says, what is this, some kind of a joke? You may have to rewind that one and listen again. Hopefully it made you smile. Until next time, friends and family, remember, dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does. Mm -hmm.